Dave mentioned earlier and Cass, we are in a sermon series called Uncertain. And we're asking the big questions that can actually often be barriers for, for people around us, people that we work with, people that we do life with, uh, and, and also for us. Last week, Stephen kicked us off by asking the question, what about other religions? And as Stephen said last week, these questions aren't something to be afraid of. So I just wanted to echo that this week. Um, these, are, these are good questions, and these are questions that people around you often actually want to explore with you. So going through these questions as a church together can help us to be better equipped to go into the community on mission where God has sent us, into the context he's called you, and engage with others about these questions. They can also help us grow personally in our own faith as we learn more and, and about who God is and what he's called us to. So the question that I'm going to be beginning to explore with you this week is, can I trust the Bible? And now I say beginning to explore purposely because in our time together this morning, there is no way that I can completely nut out every aspect of this question, right? This is a massive question. But I do encourage you, because if you can come away from today better equipped to share the gospel with someone in your setting who is, who is skeptical of the Bible, or if you come away from today with a better understanding of the assurance and the hope that you have in Jesus and the power of scripture, which leads to a deeper love and relationship of God. And that's something to celebrate. When I personally am looking into the trustworthiness of something, there are a couple of things that I'll generally take into consideration. Those things are the credibility of the person or the source that is telling me that information, the testimony of that person and their own personal experience with, with that thing, um, and also the reliability of the thing itself. So as an example of this, my husband, um, Carlton, and I have been recently having heaps of discussions about the managing of our finances, which is real adult of us, I know. Um, but yeah, something that we really need to do, right? How can we manage our finances well? How do we budget well? How do we save well? Um, how do we steward the gift of our, of our resources that we have been given from God? So during these discussions, um, one day, Carlton came home from work and he told me that he'd been having uh, some chats with a, with a guy from work about this new bank that's been created specifically for people of my generation with the idea of equipping and assisting in saving and budgeting well. And he'd gained this information from a friend of his is at work, and Carlton's a diesel mechanic, so nothing in finances or accounting or any, anything like that, right? So immediately, I went, oh, that sounds super dodgy. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I discredit it straight away as untrustworthy. And actually to the point that I don't actually really remember having this conversation with Carlton. This is something that, that he's told me recently. Um, so fast forward to last week. That was a couple of months ago, last week. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine about how she does her finances, and she told me about this new bank 
that, 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 <laughs> that she and her family uses and she told me about how it's really helped them with their budgeting and their financing and spending and saving and all that kind of thing. So I run home to Carlton and I'm like, Carlton, <laughs> guess what? I have found, I found this new system that we could use that I think would really help us, um, that my friend told me about. And he stopped me halfway through and he goes, Ash, do you realise <laughs> this is the same bank that I was telling you about a couple of weeks ago? I, I didn't. I was like, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't listen well. I don't remember. But the, the point is that I discounted what he had told me because his information had come from someone that I deemed, um, that I didn't know well, but I deemed untrustworthy in, in um, telling me about my finances. But my friend, who I deemed trustworthy, uh, I believed her and, and, and took, her, took her testimony. So I tell you this story, firstly, because questioning the trustworthiness of something that could potentially change um, our lives is normal. And also because people around us have these similar questions about the Bible. There have been many reasons thrown around as to why the Bible isn't trustworthy. To many people, it can appear to be filled with questionable claims and events, and when you mix that with the charge that it is outdated and irrelevant, we can see why the Bible is facing a crisis, crisis in regards to its credibility. So in order to tackle this question, at least in part, it's helpful to get a little bit of perspective around the shape of the Bible. What is the Bible? <clears throat> so the Bible is a compilation of 66 books written over 1,500 years by roughly 40 different authors. It inhabited three continents and it represented the whole spectrum of the social order. Fishermen, shepherds, doctors, priests, historians, scholars, kings, and many more. The Bible is also full of literary genres and some of those include historical narrative, national chronicles, sermons, letters, songs, poetry, architectural designs, legal documents, and also many more than that. <clears throat> the Bible is also a historical anomaly because despite this diversity, these individual books come together to form a constellation of meaning, almost like a mosaic that is made up of many different tiles that come together and form one beautiful picture and story. And this is one reason why Christians believe that the Bible is not only a trustworthy roadmap to life, but also inspired by God because it bears the fingerprints of a divine composer. However, the complexity of the Bible does raise challenges. There is distance in time and in culture and sometimes we, we don't understand what some of the things are saying. We, we don't understand the genre in some sections. And, and this does radically change the way that we interpret what is written. For example, the first couple of chapters of Genesis, the book of Jonah and the book of Job, are all questioned by, by scholars. Are they history? Are they theological poetry? Or is it something in between? 
If we were to read Genesis as theological poetry, this radically changes its meaning and the way that we interpret it if we were to, from, if we were to uh, read it as history. But Jesus spoke of the people in Genesis, Jonah and Job as real people. And this is often used as an argument to inform the genre of the book, which in turn changes how we read and interpret what is written. And here is where we actually get to the crux of our question for today. So much of what we believe of the Bible is based on Jesus and what Jesus says about it, his testimony on it. We believe Jesus when he says that that Adam and Eve were real people and that informs how we interpret what is written in Genesis. Through Jesus' testimony on these things, he's actually paving a way for us to establish the Bible's trustworthiness by first evaluating the trustworthiness of the primary historical sources on who Jesus is. Basically, what I'm saying is if we... If we can prove Jesus, then we can prove the rest of the Bible. If we debunk Jesus, we debunk the rest of the Bible. So, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, and if Jesus verified scripture as trustworthy book from God, then without any serious evidence to disprove the Bible's reliability, we have good reason to take Jesus at his word and to accept his view of scripture. So rather than verify the reliability of the entire Bible, we can actually narrow our test sample to the Gospels because they are the primary historical sources of Jesus. So the question we are then forced to ask is can we trust the Gospels? So quick overview of the Gospels. The Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. They are written by different authors in different places at different times. And they are, as I've said, the primary historical sources of the person, the work of Jesus. The first reason that I think we can trust the Gospels is that the Gospels record reliable eyewitness testimony about Jesus because they are loaded with intricate details that only eyewitnesses would know. So most of you, I imagine, being Northsiders, uh, would be fairly um, familiar with Westfield Chermside Shopping Centre. Am I right? Do we know Westfield Chermside? Now, I'm not a Northsider, for those of you who don't know me. I'm, I'm a Southsider. Um, but I can, I can imagine that if I was to ask most of you guys about Westfield Shopping, shopping Centre, you'd be able to tell me maybe where are the good places to park, right? Where's that little secret spot that, that no one really knows about, that the car park's generally pretty empty? You'd be able to tell me that. I, I don't know that. Uh, there'd be some of you who could tell me what the layout of the shopping centre is. There'd be some of you who could tell me what shops are where, which toilets are less gross, <laughs> uh, what colour the tiles are, and what times the shopping centre is the busiest and what kind of people are around at different times in the shopping centre. Because you've potentially grown up around um, Westfield Chermside, you, you know it intricately, intimately, uh, you know those little details. You'd be what I would consider eyewitnesses of Chermside Shopping Centre. 
I had my first trip, trip to Chermside around Christmas time. <laughs> Which, yeah, it was busy. Um, <laughs> so I would have appreciated having that knowledge before I went, but I didn't. But if you'd asked me before Christmas what Chermside Shopping Centre was like, I probably could have told you some of the generic things. I probably could have told you it's, it's a shopping centre, so it's got shops in it. I could have told you um, that it was big. I knew it was big. And I could have probably told you that the parking was awful because that's a shared thing with most shopping centres, I think. But I couldn't have explained to you any intricate, intimate details about it because I had never been there myself. I'd never experienced it for myself. I wasn't an eyewitness. The Gospels that we find in the Bible today, they are packed with accurate, intimate and intricate knowledge of the architecture, the road systems, the, the town names, city elevations, religious customs, political tensions and more at the time of Jesus. And this could only be written and explained by people who were familiar with and eyewitnesses of those places at those times. The Gospels that we find in the Bible are also written at the very most 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. And Paul's letters were written 15 to 25 years after Jesus' death. This means that the biblical accounts of Jesus' life were circulating within the lifetimes of hundreds of people who had actually been present at those events. If they weren't accurate, someone would have said something. They would have been called out on it and, and Christianity, the validity of the Gospels, would have been um, taken away a long time ago. Another detail in the Gospels is that they actually named their eyewitnesses. And they did this to assure readers of their account's authenticity. There is no reason for authors to name eyewitnesses unless the readers actually know those eyewitnesses and can speak with them and ask them questions. In the Gospel of Mark 15 to 21, for example, it says the man who helped Jesus carry his cross was the father of Alexander and Rufus. So Mark is saying... Alexander and Rufus vouch for the truth of what I am telling you. Go and ask them. You can't write this kind of thing in a document that is designed for public reading unless you actually, unless there really was a testimony from some of the people who could confirm what the author said was true. Christianity would have never gotten off the ground if Jesus hadn't actually said and done the things that were written in the Gospels. The second reason to trust the Gospels is because the content in it is too counterproductive to serve as religious propaganda. It's too counterproductive to serve as religious propaganda. So what is propaganda? That's the question I asked. Um, propaganda is defined, defined as information, especially biased or, or misleading information, used to promote a political point of view or cause. The working theory of many people today is that the Gospels were made up were made up by leaders of the early church who were trying to promote their policies, merge their power, and build a movement. 
this doesn't fit well with what we actually find in the Gospels. If the goal of writing the Gospels was to convince Jews, Greeks or Romans to sign up to a religion, to believe in and to follow in Jesus, then there's many details that we find in the Gospels that would have been left out. For example, if the Gospels were meant to establish authority of the apostles, then painting them as a bunch of bumbling, petty fools on nearly every page who in the end either actively or passively fail their master hurts their credibility. It does not serve the purpose of establishing authority. Peter alone fails to walk on water, he denies Jesus three times and he even provokes Jesus to the point that Jesus refers to him as Satan. This, this is not a good resume for someone who is meant to have the authority to preach and teach about Jesus. And I certainly hope that it's not what Dave says and how he introduces me before I get up here to speak to you. And if he did, I think a lot of you would switch your ears off. I know I would. I probably wouldn't listen to that person either. <clears throat> But, but these things are what is, what is written in the Gospels. They are, they are counterproductive to try and establish um, religious propaganda. So the only reason it'd be written in there is if it were actually true, if it actually happened. Another example of this is if you wanted to establish Jesus as God in order to build a religious movement, then centering the Gospels around Jesus' execution is a great way to shoot yourself in the foot and to never build a religious movement. A crucified God is a complete contradiction to the people of the first century. The Gospels are brutally honest. They contain a number of embarrassing features. So the most plausible explanation is that these blemishes bear testimony to their authenticity. They report what really happened. The third reason to trust the Gospels is because the testimony that is declared by the apostles about who Jesus was is considered high stakes. It had big consequences. Worshipping a man as God was considered an act of extreme blasphemy in that cultural and historical context. Jesus' claim that he was God caused his half-siblings to reject him as mad and it also sparked the religious leaders to want him executed. Those that made up Jesus' inner circle, they, they worshipped him as God. They were facing earthly condemnation from the people around them. They often faced beating and imprisonment. They were chased away from their homes and stripped of their livelihoods for believing in and following in Jesus. At least four of these apostles were martyred. Which is, which is executed and killed for preaching about Jesus. You don't allow these things to happen to you or go through this kind of hardship if what you are preaching and what you are teaching is made up. You don't suffer these things if you don't genuinely believe in the testimony that you're sharing. The high-stakes nature of their claim that Jesus is God along with the admirable character of the apostles, 
that all speaks to the gospel's authenticity. Now, none of these reasons to trust the gospels satisfies every single objection to the Bible. I just wanna make that clear. And here I just, I, I want to encourage you that, that each barrier that you face or that people around you face towards the trustworthiness of the Bible should be carefully considered with good resource and patient investigation and a lot of prayer. But this is a starting point. We can trust the Gospels because they record reliable eyewitness testimony on Jesus. The content is too counterproductive to be used as propaganda and the testimony of Jesus and the Apostles held fast even though the, the consequences were, were huge. If the Gospels were made up, they would have looked very different. I want to spend just a little bit of time now looking at how these things play out and are evident in, in, a, in, a, in Scripture. We'll be looking at Matthew 28. So if you have your Bibles, you open them up to Matthew 28. And this journeys through the resurrection of Jesus. And in a couple of weeks' time, Dave's actually going to be answering the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? So he's going to be diving into the resurrection uh, in far greater depth than I will today. But my aim right now is to show you how the things that we've spoken about in regards to the trustworthiness of the Gospels can be found in Scripture. So if you open up to Matthew 28, we'll be reading verses 1 to 10. It says, After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who are crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So first of all, we see here in verses 1 to 10 is that two women were on their way to visit Jesus' tomb and when they got there, the angel of the Lord appeared and spoke to them profoundly and gave them five words, five things. In verse 5, we see the angel give the woman a word of comfort, do not be afraid, and also a word of understanding, I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. In verse 6, the angels gave the women a word of assurance. Come and see the place where he lay. In verse 7, the angels gave the women a word of command. Go quickly and tell his disciples. And of encouragement. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. All of this is brought to us through female witnesses. 
This is astounding because women in those days were counted for, for little in both Jewish and Roman Greco circles. They were nobodies. They could, in some circumstance, be offered for sale, but they certainly could not bear witness <clears throat> in a court of law. But, oh, goodness me. <laughs> oh. But, God has two women as the first witness of Jesus' resurrection. Now, if I was a gospel writer and I wanted the witness of Jesus' resurrection to serve as religious propaganda, if I wanted it to, to hold up in court, if I wanted it to communicate authority and to lower the stakes of my testimony, I certainly would not have chosen women to be the eyewitnesses to this. It doesn't make sense unless that's what actually happened. And we can see just in this passage in Matthew 28 that, that we've quickly gone through, evidence of what we've spoken about playing out. If we can trust the Gospels, we can trust who they say Jesus is. If we can trust who Jesus says he is, then we can trust his teachings. If we can trust his teachings, then we can trust the rest of the Bible. And if we can trust the rest of the Bible, and if all of this is true, then we have such a profound assurance and hope in our salvation when we come to believe in Jesus and that he is who he says he is. So what does that mean for those of us who are followers of Jesus? If we can trust the Bible, what are we meant to do with it? On Thursday, it was uh, mine and Carlton's four-year wedding anniversary. Um, we, we had a nice dinner together, but we spent some time chatting about what we were like when we just started dating as a couple, what we were like as a couple when we just got married, and what we're like now four years, four years on. <clears throat> and I think the thing that surprises me the most is me as a, as a um, younger girl before, uh, when Carlton and I were getting married, um, I thought I was like so in love, like my love tank, I would have I described it like I couldn't love him any more than I do now, right? That, that's what I would have told you if you'd asked me how much I loved Carlton four years ago. But, <laughs> but as, as we have spent these, these four years together in marriage, um, as we've gone through different things, as, as we've uh, laughed together and cried together and just journeyed together, I've actually gotten to know his heart and his character a lot more deeply and intimately than I did before we were married. And it wasn't the experiences or the circumstances that made me love him more. It was, it was seeing his heart and his character be played out in those things. So, yeah, my love, my love for him has grown since then. Aww. <laughs> and the same thing goes for our relationship with God. The more that we are intentionally getting to know him, and the more deeply that we then love him. As our knowledge of God grows, our love for him grows. 
And the Bible is a book about God. It is a book that boldly and clearly reveals who God is on every single page. It is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is relevant, very relevant to our lives today. If this is what the Bible is, for equipping, it is relevant. It is not just words on a page, but, but it is living, it is God-breathed, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. So, if you're wanting to find greater pleasure with God, it will not come from pursuing experiences with him, but from knowing him deeper. In Romans, it says that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, not our heart, our mind. So ultimately, our personal transformation and and our knowledge of ourselves as well, who we are as people, comes from first learning about who God is. And I think what we we sang just before as well, um, I cannot help but give you praise when I remember who you are. I think, I think that's, those words really resonated with, with what I'm trying to share with you right now. And I, th- I, think, I think in my experience, though, a lot of us find ourselves doing our relationship with God only or primarily through what I would call like third-party sources. Things like listening to worship music, listening to podcasts, listening to sermons, reading books about the Bible, reading books about Christian living or about theology. And while these things are are very good and are very helpful and we are very blessed to have access to them, they are not foundational. They They are tools to be used alongside the foundation of the Bible. So if we want to get to know God more, we spend time with him in his word But I'm going to say it, spending time in the Word can be a bit of a slog. It's not something we know how to do intuitively, and that's difficult. But we are called to be disciples, and the word disciple means learner, and learning requires effort. But I'm also not surprised that that spending time in the Word is hard. Why? Well, I think the answer is found in the first two chapters of the Bible. Adam, God speaks to Adam and and gives him instruction. And only one chapter later, in chapter two, we find that Adam has, has forgotten and ignored what God has said to him. We are not good listeners. And isn't this the fundamental nature of sin? We struggle to listen to God. We struggle to come before the word and hear what God is telling us through it. So if the Bible is God's word and it is something that we should be listening to, I'm not surprised that our sinful nature gets in the way of that. But we can take heart knowing that that we worship a God who is more powerful than our sin, right? And as much as I want to be able to stand up here and tell you that I am perfectly disciplined in this area of my life, I can't. 
It's still something that I fight every day. And to be honest, I haven't met anyone who, who is perfect in this yet. But I, I do want to share some practical things that have really helped me personally in my journey with this. The first thing is I found someone, whether that be a mentor or a friend, who can read the Bible with me and can keep me accountable in that. I've asked them to ask me the hard questions. And in turn, they allow me to ask them the hard questions as well. Another thing, I found a routine that works for me. I, in the morning, I make my breakfast and I sit at my table and I, I read while I eat and I leave my phone in another room so that I don't get distracted by it. I keep my Bible somewhere that I can see it at all times. I don't put it away in a drawer where in the morning I, I either forget about it or I, I feel like my, my mind tells me it's too much effort to go and get it out of that drawer. It's there where I can see it. I don't read massive chunks of text every day. If I tried to read a whole chapter a day, for me that, that is just way too much information to try and digest and go through at one, in one sitting. So I read small amounts. And ladies, this one's for you. I will shamelessly plug a book called Woman of the Word by Jen Wilkin. I would say this book has been pivotal in my own journey in, in spending time with God, in deeply communing with him. So, yeah, if, if that's something, a resource that you can use, Woman of the Word, guys, you as well, if you have uh, women in your life at all, then this is a beautiful gift that you can give them. And ultimately, I find strength and lean on God in help for this every day. Because without, without him, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't keep going on this journey. It is God through the Holy Spirit at work in a faithful disciple that makes clear what is written in the Bible. So as I said at the start of my message, we go through these questions so that we can be better equipped to go into our mission fields to be sent and to share the hope of Jesus. God has sent every one of you who believe in him into your context to shine the light of Jesus and to make disciples. And these questions can also be refining of our own faith as we grow and we learn deeper what it is to be in relationship with the living God. So my prayer for us all echoes that of Jesus' prayer to his disciples, or for his disciples rather, in John 17. So I wonder, yeah, let's, let's pray that now and spend some time in prayer. Heavenly Father, my prayer is not that you take us out of this world, but that you protect us from the evil one. We are not of this world, just as Jesus was not of it. Sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Lord, I say it again, sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent Jesus in this world, he has sent us into the world. And Lord, I, I thank you for, for your living word. God, that is a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. God, help us grow in it and be sanctified by it. Help us to use what we learn in your word to be better disciples and better image bearers for God. 
going into our places of mission that we've been sent to and witnessing to those who don't know Jesus that they may be transformed by the work of the Spirit and come to know you. In your name, amen.